welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Hi, and welcome to Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum. I'm Shakina Tawahene, Commercial Editor at Smallwood Solutions. Today I'm joined by Kate Davies, Executive Director of IMLA, and Annie Crossley, Managing Director for Distribution at Legal and General Retail. Thank you both for joining me today. And before we get into the discussion, you both give me a bit of background about what you do in your role in the industry. So, Kate, I'll come to you first. Thank you. Good morning, Shakina, and good morning to everyone listening. I joined the mortgage industry in 1991. I started working for the Building Societies Association and Council of Mortgage Lenders, which at that time were run by the same secretariat. And during my time there, I became involved with IMLA, became aware of what IMLA was. It's a separate trade association which represents mortgage lenders who sell their mortgages entirely through intermediaries. I now run IMLA, which is something I enjoy very much. It's a part-time role. IMLA is a very small trade association and quite virtual in lots of ways. But our role is to give the members of staff within each mortgage lender, the members of staff who are responsible for the interaction between their firm and their intermediaries, who run the intermediary distribution, to give them a, an opportunity to network together and to talk about matters of mutual concern. We also have responsibility for representing the their views to the regulators, to the Bank of England, to the Treasury, to government departments, depending what particular policy subjects are top of the list. And that's about it, I suppose, representing them, helping them to to share their views and express their views. We don't try and compete with the larger trade associations like UK Finance and the Building Societies Association. That would be completely inappropriate. We look at a very specific perspective on the market, which is the lender-intermediary relationship and all the policy and political issues that affect that. Thank you very much. And Ali, the same to you. What is your role in the industry? Uh, Hi, Shakina. So, yes, I've been in financial services for too many years, really, since the late 80s. And I've worked in a number of different organisations and a number of of large corporates, basically. Initially, I started off in in marketing roles, but I now run distribution for Legal General's retail business, which spreads across both protection, mortgages, annuities and beyond. And my part of my role is to be sponsor for diversity and inclusion within LNG. So I'm very much focused on DNI agenda. And I guess, you know, what's helpful for me or puts me in a good position to be able to leverage my role is the fact that I look after a lot of internal and external relationships within LNG. So all of the lenders, for example, as well as many, many mortgage mortgage brokers and other distributors. Thank you very much. And that actually brings us nicely into the topic that we are discussing today, which is the role that white women might have in the sector. I'm sure that you have both overcome the odds to become two of the leading figures in the mortgage market, but in a sector that is predominantly white. 
it can be argued that you are one step removed from what is considered the privileged or the dominant person in the industry. And so while these barriers cannot be ignored, it could also be argued that you may not always come across the same obstacles as your non-white counterparts. For example, the Women in Finance Charter was established in 2016 to improve senior female representation in the sector, while the broader Race at Work Charter came in 2018. It is also now law for firms of more than 250 employees to report on their gender pay gap, while an equivalent policy does not exist for race or ethnicity. Although some firms do this voluntarily, in 2021, the government essentially said it will be too complicated to track as people who can fall under many categories are like gender, which is binary. Though I will say that in itself is not everyone's belief. So Ali, I'll come to you first. With this in mind, do you ever feel or recognise that you have some sort of privilege over women of colour in this sector? That's a really good question, Shakina. I think the answer is I didn't, if I'm honest, until I really started to think about DNI issues. I mean, have I suppose always thought of myself as lucky, even though, yes, I've definitely come across lots of obstacles in my career by virtue, not just of being a woman, but by virtue of having children sometimes not living close to my office, all sorts of different things which probably put me to a disadvantage over my other colleagues, including men, which is, of course, the majority of my colleagues. But now that I am focused on DNI, I can absolutely see that it is easier for me. It has been easier for me to progress than it has been and is for women of colour. So I do recognise that there is some privilege, but I've never felt that. I've always felt it's actually been quite a struggle in spite of that. But I recognise it's even harder for others. Yeah, of course. And I guess that's the interesting sort of position that you might have, that you will face your own struggles that are very valid and very true. But there is that also probable advantage you may have over others. And Kate, I'll ask you the same question. Yes, just thinking back, I said I came into the industry in 1991. I'd actually been working for 10 years before that. I started off in local government in 1981. And senior management at that time was certainly white and male. There were more women certainly coming in to more senior posts and there were more women working in local government. It was very non-diverse in terms of race and where there were women of colour working, they tended to be in secretarial roles or more junior support roles. And that was true also when I joined the mortgage sector in 1991. So I don't think I ever felt I was held back because I was female. I can't honestly say that I know that I was preferred for promotion or whatever over women of colour because there simply were no women of colour coming through at that level. As I say, they were in support roles or whatever. It's partly an age thing, I guess. There will be many more people. If I look back to my old school, that was not very diverse. If I think back to my university, very few people of colour, students of colour at university. That has really changed. So I can only hope that going forward to the next generation coming through, there will be much more equality. There'll be much more diversity of people in the work pool for employers to select from and therefore to promote and develop. Of course. And Kate, back to you. I guess you just say that you didn't really notice it because there weren't many women coming through the ranks to be aware of. But just generally, have you ever seen any differences in experiences that you may face compared to what a woman of colour may face? And if not, do you try and make yourself aware of the challenges they may come across? Not so much in a work context. It is almost a sort of personal context when I, a lady who looked after my mother when she needed to have care in the last years of her life, that lady was Zimbabwean. And if I walked into a room with her, she was the carer. 
she was a bit of a second-class citizen until I introduced her and said, well, Caroline has done this and she's done that and she's had a history of this. And they gulped and stood back and virtually saluted because she's a very impressive woman. And I had a, a young lady working for me as a secretary in uh, CML days at one stage. We were talking about going out in the evenings and she told me that she could not ever drink in the evenings when she went out because she always drove herself when she went nightclubbing. And she knew that every single time she went out, she would be stopped by the police. Now, I have once or twice been stopped by the police because I'd accidentally jumped a red light or I'd driven off without my headlights on. And they were always incredibly polite and courteous and all the rest of it. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, on your way, ma'am, sort of thing. I think it would have been very different if I'd been in her place. And that really kind of wakes you up and think, whoa, there is a, a big difference of, of treatment here and that can't be right. Very hard to pinpoint, as I say, in a work context because they're just... I haven't been in that situation where I've been maybe in competition with someone for a role or even in the same room with someone else trying to make herself heard, maybe being talked over, that sort of thing. Of course, that's very interesting to know that it is a sort of wider social context that you find it in. And Ali, I know you say that you discovered this or sort of realised privilege a little bit more recently. And so what experiences have you noticed that are different to what you face and how do you make yourself aware? I actually, I think Kate made some really interesting points there. I think, you know, there's a big thing about unconscious bias there and the sort of mention of the police and so on. And, and, you know, people might say that they're not prejudiced or not biased, but in fact, they clearly are. And there's lots and lots of work in that space. I think, how do I make myself work? I, I'm just now much more conscious and alert to any opportunities I might have to encourage women of colour people with neurodivergence, all sorts of different DNI type groups that we might think of and to try and ensure that I put my shoulder behind them in it with every opportunity I have. But I think the point Kate made about actually there just aren't that many women of colour or men of colour come to that who are working in our industry. And I, I mean, that is clearly true if you look at the data. And I think the real focus for us is, is in business is to really drive more applications from people from different backgrounds and in general doing a lot of work in that space but you know we need to have mixed candidates in our shortlist we need to make sure we have a balanced selection panels too not just sort of white men selecting and so on and I think it's about encouraging more people to apply for these roles people from the ethnic backgrounds I should say and, and similarly applying for roles in the STEM subjects if you look at the actuarial function you know it's full of white men I'm making a broad statement but it is predominantly white men why don't we have any women from ethnic diverse backgrounds applying they just don't do it so I think we don't have enough opportunities really because there aren't that many people around for us to help I guess it's a summary. That's a very interesting point Ali it's not just encouraging women to come into the industry it's encouraging the roles that they do I mean I've sat on a, a couple of boards where even though you have a, a, a reasonable female representation on a board, they tend to take the slightly softer roles, if I can say that. Who's the chair of risk? Who's the chair of audit? Well, it's going to be one of the men, isn't it? Because they understand these things. And the, the women might be the chair of the remuneration committee or the HR bit or something, which is seen as a little bit softer, that sort of thing. And I think that needs to be challenged as well. I mean, there is a change now. There are more female chief executives of building societies, more, I think there are a couple certainly of big banks. They are coming through. It just takes quite a long time for someone to climb up the pole and stay there and then get the chance to get the top jobs. That's a good point. Going back to the government not mandating ethnicity pay gap reporting, while some may see the multiple categories line as an excuse, ultimately this is true. People often fall under a number of characteristics which may compound to disadvantages against them. And this is described as intersectionality. 
For example, a black woman could have a relatively easier time in the mortgage sector than a non-binary Asian person, as an Asian person could fall under more protected classes. The Breaking the Glass Barrier report from Progress Together, which had input from Paragon's Richard Roundtree, found that social status was a massive factor in how people progressed at work. And important to report, 45% of senior leaders in the UK financial professional sectors are white men from professional backgrounds, which means they have sort of parents who are in professional jobs rather than uh, blue collar work. And in the same token, just 1% of working class women from ethnic minority backgrounds are senior leaders in the financial and professional sectors. So Kate, do you think we're doing a disservice to people who fall under many characteristics by speaking about things like race, gender, social economic status, sexuality and disability in isolation? Oh gosh, this is a really, really complex one. I don't do any recruiting now. I'm the only person employed by IMRA. I have no staff working with me. And it's a long time since I've done any recruitment. I would like to think that if someone presents themselves for a role and they walk into the room, yes, of course, I'm going to notice their, the colour of their skin. You can't not notice that. I'm going to notice whether they present themselves as male or female. But the other things you're going to notice, the things I'm going to notice are how they've dressed themselves, how they've prepared themselves, how they speak, how confident they appear and how much competence they exude. Whether I feel in talking to them, they're going to be able to do this job. They've got potential, that sort of thing. So you get over the immediate bits that you've recognised and some of the other bits shouldn't be necessary. They shouldn't feel they need to hide something, but I don't need to know too much of the detail either. I need to know whether they're going to be the right person for this job. So I think a lot can be done to help people who may have several characteristics which they feel are holding them back, helping them to present themselves in a way which is true to themselves, but presenting themselves in a way which is clearly going to be right for that industry. I'm not suggesting that everyone has to dress in a certain way or speak in a certain way, but they have to be able to speak articulately. It doesn't matter if it's with an accent. They need to be able to put forward a point persuasively and cogently and it doesn't matter so much what they're wearing so long as maybe that if it's a, if you're in a smart environment you're expected to be smart if you're working in a different sort of environment you might be wearing overalls or whatever do you see what I mean it's just understanding what you need to do to fit in because I think it should be a little bit of give and take you shouldn't necessarily assume that you could walk straight into a, an interview environment or a job environment and everything is going to work around you you need to be a little bit flexible as well of course that's a good point and Ali what can the sector do to bring these conversations together if there is a need to do so so that can create more recognition for the people that may face different levels of challenges at different times i'd just like to come back with just on before i answer that question just on something kate said because i really agree with that i think there is something about respect for the organization that you're working for if i rocked up in dungarees or something i was going to a meeting with an external partner and that wouldn't go down very well and I, it's no good saying well that's outrageous I'm being discriminated against because I'm wearing dungarees you just got to be respectful and kind of you know if you're working and do your part as well so I think it is a two-way thing absolutely but I think to answer the question yes about the sort of multiplicity of different characteristics that people might have that means they're more likely to be discriminated against. I think we need to carry on doing things like this. I do think DIF has been absolutely fantastic. I think Barrett's done a really great job at spearheading this initiative and, and bringing people across the industry together. You know, it's really increased awareness, dialogue, understanding. It's just been fantastic. I look back at the menopause conversation we had and people in the room saying, lots and lots of men in the room saying, 
oh my gosh, you know, I don't go through it myself, but my sister does, my mother does, my wife does. And that was incredibly powerful. And so I think keep having these types of conversations, number one, is really important. And the other one is, I guess, really about awareness and training, particularly for large organisations. And I would include legal in general there because we've got bigger budget, bigger share of voice, more clout, therefore, to kind of raise awareness on some of these things. And, you know, I'm really pleased that we do do a huge amount of that kind of training and awareness sessions across the organisation internationally. Um, and one of the things we've done is reverse mentoring, done a lot of work in that space where senior people have been encouraged to put themselves in the shoes of somebody with a completely different background or completely different life experience, different sexuality, different, you know, could be disabled, etc., etc., to just increase empathy, really, understanding of some of the challenges of others. But, I mean, to your point, where you've got more than one of those characteristics, of course, that's going to make things more challenging. But I'd come back to, you know, I'm half deaf in one ear. I was a single mum with two kids, which is quite tricky. And I'm a female, but I didn't sort of think, oh, my lot is terrible. It does, of course, create particular challenges that need to be overcome. But I think all of this, it makes it so important that when you do get to a position of influence and seniority, we can help those who are going to be struggling to get up the ladder. And I think, you know, I'm sure Kate's got a view on that too. So I think a long answer to your question, but I think keep having conversations like this is really important and depend on larger organisations like LMG, Lloyd's Banking Group, obviously Esther's doing a huge amount of work in this space too. And we need to carry on the journey. It's not that we're far from done with it. That's very true. And going back to the makeup of the sector. So Amy's diversity, inclusion and equity viewpoint report found that 44% of people from ethnic minority backgrounds working in the mortgage sector do not think the workforce represented the diversity of the whole community compared to 37% of women who disagreed. However, People from ethnic minority backgrounds were more likely to be mortgage advisors, brokers, company owners or directors than women were. They were also just as likely to think the sector offered equal opportunities to progress as women. So there is a interesting dynamic where they don't think the industry represents the community, but they do think that it's easier to progress and they do tend to have more business owning roles. So Ali, is it surprising to see that people from ethnic minority backgrounds are more likely to run their own businesses in the mortgage sector? So I think it is quite surprising. I was quite surprised to find out that ethnic minority backgrounds are more likely to run their own businesses. But I thought that's fantastic. I suppose it could tell you one of a number of things. It could tell you that that's the case because people from ethnic minority backgrounds are not getting roles within organisations that they might like to work for. It could tell you they've got a fantastic work ethic, they're more likely to be risk takers, etc. And all credit to them. So I think, yes, I was surprised at that, but I think it's brilliant that that's what they're doing. I mean, what wouldn't be brilliant is if the reason they're doing that is because they can't get roles within large organisations or any size organisation, clearly. And that's back to the stuff we've already discussed, that we need to make sure we have mixed shortlists for candidates and so on. Um, so, yeah, as I say, all credit to anybody who's running their own business. I think that's a very brave thing to do and, and great to see. And do you think that it generally represents the career progression that's available in the distribution side of the market? You mean the fact that ethnic minority backgrounds are likely to be self-employed? Just in general, the fact that people are able to progress further sort of by working hard and maybe even setting up their own business. Absolutely. I mean, there's no shortcut to working hard. I mean, that's what I say to my children all the time. There is some luck and I would say I have been very lucky 
lots of areas of my life, not least to have fantastic allies and so on in businesses I've worked for. But it's also not just luck. It's also, it's hard work. And I think if you're a woman, you probably have to work harder than, I mean, it's a sweeping statement. I don't like making sweeping statements, but there have been times in my career where I felt I've had to graft harder, work harder in order to prove myself. That is certainly the case. And I know lots of my female colleagues would say the same. And I think, yeah, there's nothing like hard work for progressing. If you really work very hard, then you're going to obviously increase your seeding. That's very valid. And Kate, speaking for the lender side of the sector, do you think the same opportunities are available where people can succeed off their own bats? I struggle to think of a, an answer for this question because although I can see it's possible to set up on your own as a mortgage intermediary. I can't see how you could set up your own bank <laughs> on your own or start your own building society. And there are some small startups which have started very, very small with two or three people if you get the funding in. I suspect the challenges there are huge. And I'm not, I mean, I suppose one of the big exceptions to that rule would be Anne Bowden, who set up Starling Bank, and she'd tell you how tough that was. And she's an exceptional individual. So I think it would be very difficult to set up a new lender, but I stand to be corrected on that. And I certainly would be delighted if anyone managed to do it. I'd agree with Ali that in some areas, maybe some ethnic groups have an even stronger entrepreneurial drive than others. Speaking for myself, I never did. I, I've always rather liked the comfort blanket of being employed. And I wasn't ever particularly ambitious in terms of careers, certainly not 20, 30 years ago. What was more disturbing about the Amy report was that people who wanted to be part of a firm, to be employed, were finding they were being passed over and they weren't making the progress they felt they deserved. So they felt they had to leave. And that's unfortunate because that's the negative side of, of that coin. But I wish them every success in their own initiatives. And uh, I'm sure they will be very successful. If they've got the right drive. Yeah, of course. And Ali, do you feel like the more established you've become in your career, the easier it is to be an ally and influence change? Absolutely is the answer to that. Yes, obviously, the higher up you go, the, the more influence you have. And yeah, the more people are looking to you to create a sort of leadership shadow, looking to follow your example, it really helps to set the culture in an organisation as you become more senior. So I think Absolutely. And I think it is a duty to be an ally as well as a mentor to others. And it's all about paying it forward. And, and I actually spend quite a lot of my time thinking about, well, or hopefully being allies to people in meetings, just generally in the organisation and outside the organisation too. So I think being available to sort of coach, guide, recommend people, little things like when you're in meetings, if you see that somebody is being particularly quiet and being dominated by others then just saying and is there anything you'd like to add or trying to make people feel comfortable to speak up basically so I think there's an awful lot of we can do it in incumbent on us to be allies as we progress yes absolutely yeah of course and Kate how about you and the work that you do at IMLA Ah, I'd, I'd certainly endorse everything that Ali said. My role, it's slightly different because I don't have staff working for me. Obviously, I work with lots of people and I can only hope that I, I don't know how I'm perceived, but I, I, I hope some people would regard me as a role model or see and approve of the way I go about working. Certainly on mentoring, I haven't mentored within the industry, but I was mentoring some students from my old university. And one girl in particular was having real problems with a meeting that she was attending where the chair kept on talking over her or asking her deputy who happened to be one of the lads and I said to her you really need to say to your vice president whatever he's called to go straight back to the chair and say I'll ask so-and-so to answer that question because you shouldn't 
have asked me because I'm a chap. They, the lady on my right is the person you should have spoken to. And I, I'm sure, Ali, you'll be aware of this. You'll talk to a child whose mother or father then leaps in and answers for them. You're thinking, no, leave it to the child. <laughs> Don't answer for them. So, I mean, you pick these things up as you go along. It's difficult to know how much you project that, or I find it difficult to assess how much I project it in what I hope is a positive way. But allyship, yes, helping people if they're very quietly or firmly and tactfully shutting people up when they're talking too much in meetings, if you're in a position to be able to do that, because some people do like to hold the floor. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that the child-adult thing and the male-female thing, that the fact is that women in general are shorter, smaller, you know, we, when we're sitting at the chair, our stature is lower than that of men, our voices are obviously higher. Those things, since forever, since time began, the fact that we are physically smaller and considered fragile and the, and the sex to be protected means that men, you know, it's just ingrained in our psyche that men kind of look after us. And that kind of happens at work too. They speak on our behalf and that kind of thing. So we're, we're actually trying to correct something that's very deeply ingrained in, in our whole evolution. The voice is actually quite important and this is something I've spoken to students about about presenting themselves at interviews or giving presentations if you've got a very high piping sort of voice it's not going to project Now we don't all need to do a Margaret Thatcher and put our voices down two octaves but it's something worth thinking about because if people can't hear what you're saying they're not going to listen to it and also sometimes there's a tendency to speak too much I can think of days back in county council days when I worked for them when there was one lady who said very little but when she did, my goodness, everyone listened because what she said was so sensible. And so sometimes less is more. We don't always have to leap in and, and have an opinion on it and everything. But it's a question of being very conscious of what you do, how you come over. I speak too fast, I know that. <laughs> I need to slow down. And being willing to be filmed, be taped, listen to the feedback and think, gosh, do I really sound like that? And listen to what people are saying about how you are perceived. Because we all think we know how we're being perceived. But you're not necessarily getting the full picture and you're maybe not doing yourselves as many favours as you could be. So training and allyship and constructive criticism can be very helpful. Yeah, and those are interesting points that both of you have made about the perception of women and also just trying to make sure that their voices are heard when there are any spaces where there might be the single person in the room. Yeah, exactly, literally. <laughs> and so, Ali, what progress have you seen in the sector over the time that you've been in the sector when it comes to inclusion and equity for people of colour? Yeah, a lot of progress, but clearly a lot more still needs to be done. I mean, I'm just delighted that even in general, this year, for the first time in our annual report, you will see that we've committed to increasing ethnicity representation across our workforce to 17% by 2025. And I think it's a very ambitious target. It's higher than any other insurers, any of our peers, and we've deliberately set out to be really ambitious. And going back to the point that lots of ethnic diverse backgrounds uh, groups don't necessarily apply for the actuarial roles and so on, which are prevalent in in insurance, it's very challenging. And when you think about where some of our offices are based, um, Hove and Cardiff, as well as London, it's a very challenging target. So I'm really delighted we've stuck our necks out. We've actually put, as I say, it's in the annual report, in print. The chairman will hold the group board to account on delivering it, as are all of our CEOs. So I think I know LBG and others are doing, Royce Banking Group, sorry, and, and many other large corporates are doing a very similar thing. So I think 
there's definitely progress, but there's definitely more to do. And I think what I discovered when I first started sponsoring the DNI was that there are so many different areas to focus on. First of all, it was about gender, then it was LGBTQ+, and now our focus is more on ethnicity than anything else within LNG, because we feel that that is the gap that we've recognised we need to close. So I'm really encouraged, to be honest, but we clearly need to keep going. Of course. And Kate, in your opinion, what progress has the sector made? Again, I see it slightly one step removed, being in the, in the trade association rather than working in an individual company. Probably not far enough yet. I think it will change. It needs to change because as a service sector, as part of the financial services sector, we're serving customers ultimately and customers come in all shapes and sizes and colours and backgrounds and, and characteristics and whatever. And if we're not reflecting our customers, customers will walk and go elsewhere. And it's absolutely right that there's proper balance. But I hope it is changing. I expect to see a big change in the next 10 to 20 years. I mean, I'm kind of retirement age now, so things will be very different, I'm sure. Thank you for that, Kate. And we've spoken a little bit about how changes are being made on a company level. But speaking from a trade association point of view, what is being done within trade organisations to help this along? The Amy report kicked off with making some pretty hard-hitting observations about diversity and how it's being handled in the sector. And one of the very positive developments which has come out of that is partly even closer working between Imra and Amy, which I think is a very positive thing, and the setting up of a new website called Working in Mortgages, which is designed to help people across a range of issues to promote the sector as a good place to work, as a safe place to work, as a supportive place to work. And it's gradually building up a really big resource bank of information and advice and help. And it's also going to work on setting up mentoring schemes from within firms and across the industry. And I would hope that lots of young people who are thinking of coming into the industry might think that's not for me, would be able to go to this website and find some really useful information, not just on how to get a job with Blogs Bank or how to become a mortgage broker or mortgage advisor within a particular sector, but also, well, you know, I'm black, I'm LGTB, whatever, or I have a disability how would this industry be able to support me? And increasingly, I hope they'd, they'd find something positive on that website. It's something we really are putting a lot of effort and resource into. I have to say, Amy's doing a lot of the heavy lifting on this, but lenders are getting very involved as well. And I hope that will be a very positive contribution. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that, because that is a very important point. And I hope that everyone does check the website out and see the resources that are available there, because it's also open to people within the industry, as well as people thinking of joining. So that's worth a mention. And thank you both for joining me this morning, your time and being so willing and open to speak about this honestly. I hope everyone listening has taken something away from this and will join us for the next episode. Bye, everyone. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.